All right, so we had one of the grandest of events in college football in the past week in the Rose Bowl. And there was some talk online about the two bands and their performances during the Rose Bowl. I did some digging, uh, looking, and we'll put in the show notes the recordings of the two uh, halftimes, although one of them is from a different game for Alabama, but it was a better recording than some of the other ones I could found. But the internet had some comments on Alabama's uh, show. There were, there so, Jeff, let's get started. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's get started here. What is the name of the Alabama, the University of Alabama's band? And uh, what was the name of their show this year? Yep. So they're the Million Dollar Band. Uh, their show was Roll Tide Radio, in which they do kind of a, a selection of different styles of pop songs all together with some narration that's supposed to sound like a radio DJ and some sound effects. This all feels very like DCI cadet stuff of that narration, the sound effects as they're doing stuff. Um, very like mid 2000s cadets. Um, I was graduating high school at this. This was peak uh, in vogue when I was in high school and as an undergrad. So I loved it. Sorry. I loved it. Thought it was great. But the Internet did not. So <laughs> what did what did they think of specifically uh, the pit? And they had a breakdown for the pit where they did a monster xylophone solo. Yeah. So it's very co- this is a very common drum corps thing that you have a pit feature or drumline feature and the winds will do some very complex drill as that's going on. This I think was part of either part of what was shown in the Rose Bowl broadcast I was driving at the time, but part of what was shown or people there were, were watching it. There were some comments on uh, some message boards of like, are you just having the pit play and not the winds? It's like one, the winds played for most of the show, but this is a very common thing where you'll do a feature and the drum line in the pit, and then you'll have some very complex drill. It was a really well-executed well drum 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 uh, drum line and pit feature. It just yeah agreed. It's just very it interesting because you don't see college bands do that. You mostly see correct that done in DCI and front of the show. Arch, who's really plugged into drum core, he knows some of the people that did some of the show design. They are people that work with Carolina Crown. So they are these are straight up. These are drum corps people that are designing the show, which makes sense of why it felt very much that way. And they did like it was very well executed. Everything they did, like incredible job. It just is a. Not something you see to that level. In college bands, like even UMass doesn't necessarily go as hard into this style of performance of drum drum court type performance that alabama did yeah and umass is probably the most of the dci looking college bands i one of the things that you, you pointed out was that they had really sharp straight lines they actually do more straight lines than what we would see in a drum and bugle core particularly dci i have a personal theory on that of the dci judges got very very strict on straight lines around this same time period yes, where it was huge deductions for non-perfectly straight protractor straight lines. Um, it, it just also kind of bleeded into USSBA uh, because I, I remember very, very vividly we were being told like, well, we're going to do arches and arcs instead of lines because, you know, they are heavily deducting for points on straight lines. If you're not covering down or shoulder to shoulder, yep. they're going to be upset about <laughs> Um So, but, but again, the million dollar band, this is, This is a Suttler trophy winner. I mean, this is a high quality band. And I I thought the show was good. Granted, to be fair, the broadcast only showed about 30 seconds and it it was the pit solo. What else did you what else did you take from what you saw going around the Internet, particularly the SEC championship game halftime show? Yeah, so that was, I think, the same formatted show, which had a little bit had. Same elements. Yeah, same same elements. It was a really good recording of that show, which is why that was kind of more of what I was focusing on. But yeah, it's really interesting because it is very much a DCI style show, but all of the music is pop music, which you don't always see in in a drum core show. And I think everything was well, like everything was arranged to fit the the style of performance they were doing. It It was... A really interesting show. It was a really interesting combination of music because it was all very different genres of of pop music. But I thought it was really good and really well executed. 
I thought it was a great show. Again, these are high performing bands at the top of the game. Uh, I'm biased. Would love to see if the University of Alabama would play any one of the two FCS HBCUs that play football in Alabama and then invite one of either the a and the Alabama A&M Maroon and White Band or the Alabama State Marching Hornets Marching Band. That would be great, but I'd understand those are those are things we can't see. But I thought their show was fine. I enjoyed it. And when I watched both versions of it, I, I found a not so great recording of the Rose Bowl show. I thought you were right. I especially personally love when bands come off the field to perform because in, and Jeff will tell you this, DCI and other band competitions, leaving the field is a major deduction. I love that college bands do it just because they can. And there's no one to deduct points. Yeah, that is the one thing with the, with the straight lines of, yeah, if if you don't aren't doing competition, you can do whatever. Like, and they executed all the straight lines very well, but like, it's very much a... Yeah, you're doing this for for an audience, not judges. And that's a very different set of things to think about and how you design a show. Completely agree. I I was very impressed with what they did and, you know, would love to see more of them. I, I It's wild. And I've watched Alabama play in the postseason every year for the last since they got off probation. So the entire time I was going to say 20 years, but. A part of me is like, well, 20 years ago, Mike Du Bois was still kind of like their head coach and Mike Shula was still their head coach. So like they didn't go to the to the postseason then. But like the entire time that Nick Saban has been the head coach, they've been in some sort of postseason. And I have only a handful of times watched the Million Dollar Band perform. Hear them every week on CBS. So I have heard them. They're very good in yeah. the stands. Great show. Uh, now, Jeff, the other band here is another Sudler winner, Sudler Trophy winner, this time the University of Michigan. And what was the the the, the theme of their show or the title of their show? So theirs was Believe. Um, OK, it was also a really interesting combination of songs because it was Eleanor Rigby um, and it was an incredible yes. arrangement of Eleanor Rigby. Um, they added in a ton of really interesting horn licks that obviously aren't in the original Beatles version, but are like incredibly complex stuff that was really well executed, also executed while moving. Um, they had a selection from Swan Lake and they had some music from Ted Lasso because Jim Harbaugh likes it. Um, sure. <laughs> but that was literally the reason given in, in the announcement. And I'm like, OK. Um, I mean, he had a lot of time. He had a lot of time this season to watch Ted Lasso. Yeah. Um, and one of the things. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, thank you. I, sorry for stepping over you there, but I the Swan Lake stuff hit me pretty hard because I was uh, sitting with my best friend, uh, my, my college roommate. He had came down. We watch football every year. We watch the, the playoffs every uh, every New Year's. And one of the things that was shocking to me was that they played Swan Lake because I my high school band, we played Swan Lake. So like I heard it. And I'm like, oh, a, a marching band playing Swan Lake. I got to run up and see it. And it was a very like emotional and well-played version of Swan Lake. I did want to ask you this because again, uh, big 10 guy um, participated in activities with the Purdue university of Purdue university marching band. What is the spelling stuff that they were doing? Cause they, they spelled out at the end, Michigan versus everybody. And that's a very quote unquote big 10 thing. But the big 10 school we know for spelling stuff is, Ohio State. I don't know Michigan for spelling things as Everybody much. Everybody does it. Like so, that's a big this is, thing. Yeah. So it is a very kind of tra more traditional style of drill that you will do some sort of image or some sort of writing that reflects the music. So it's very common um, across the Big Ten. It's not just Ohio State. It's not just Michigan. Purdue does it. Everybody to a pretty decent degree, does it of you will either spell out some words. Um, Ohio State's gotten really well known recently of like doing stick figure motions um, of giant stick figures. The moonwalking Michael Jackson. Yeah. Um, like Purdue very often will spell stuff or do like giant vehicles. They will move across the field. One of the pregame things is a giant train that moves across the field. Um, and they've during different shows had, you know, 
trucks and stuff and they'll spin wheels. It's it's really incredible drill. Um, but it is a very Big Ten thing to do that kind of spelling out stuff. Very interesting. I I wonder um, with current Big Ten team, uh, the University of Southern California, if they're going to have to now be forced by by the bylaws of the Big Ten to conform and spell things out on the field. Uh, what's your expert analysis on that? Probably not, because I think you also have some other. Di- you have at this point kind of a different group of styles of bands and they all kind of still do their their own thing. And I think that's good to have different styles. I don't want to sugar in any style as long as you're executing it well. You choose your style, do the thing you want to do. And the variety is great. Um, I think USC is going to be very much what what USC is. Um, same with, you know, the other new entrants. Uh, Nebraska, I think, is the only one with a pit at the moment. Um, Correct. Which is well, Rutgers. Does Rutgers have Rutgers a- had a pit when I was in high school? They had a pit that was 20 years ago. I cannot speak to what the Rutgers marching band does now. So I will be furiously Googling and, and searching to figure that out. But you vamp while I do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think fundamentally, as a conference that has a ton of different teams, you do want to see some some ver- stylistic variety. And I will say there's a decent amount in in the Big Ten. Michigan is kind of does some of the traditional stuff, but also does a lot of very core style stuff, particularly in the kinds of arrangements they do. Um, and you could see it in the show. One, they were doing a lot more kind of rounded shapes in the straight lines. Um, they had a lot, uh, they had a little bit of that drum break with the complex drill. They don't have a pit, but a, a drum break with the winds doing complex drill around them for a short period of time. Although they came back in and the winds were playing during some of that as well. Um, they had some really executed um, bass lines and, you know, tonal bass lines with um, the percussion. And yet they're absolutely technically precise horn lines, which is a very Michigan thing compared to Ohio State that like for a very long time. Didn't do anything quicker than a quarter note and percussion. Right. Basically to be hmm. as clean as possible. They don't have tonal bases. Bases. They don't have woodwinds other than saxophones. They're just a very different style. Wisconsin is a very different style, particularly in how they march than like everyone else in the Big Ten. There's also some weird cultural things within the Wisconsin band that has um, gotten them on probation a couple times. Uh, but that's a different story than them style stickers is very different than a lot of the other conf- conference. And like, it's very cool to see. So USC doing their own thing. That's cool. Um, same with Oregon and Washington and, and UCLA. I sure hope everybody loves the song victory because uh, they play that a lot. Yeah. At the University of Southern California. They play it a lot. I mean, you know, not it's one of their staples. They do it <laughs> after every first down and touchdown and, any good play made, but yeah, it's going to be great. I'm super excited for this. Um, from what I could find, all of the photos that I have here of the Rutgers band, um, the Rutgers Marching Scarlet Knights, uh, they do have a pit, but these are all very old pictures. These are color pictures from the 60s and 70s. Okay, um, interesting. And looking at some even older pictures, they have a pit. It looks like right on the sideline. Uh, and this is a photo of them uh, marching around in 1930. So... That, that was back when, like, so I think D, into the 70s, DCI didn't let you have pits. So there were, they were points where there were people marching with timpani, like strapped yes. to them. And it's wild. God, I really wish we had, I, I really <laughs> wish we had uh, uh, some of those, the sickos that do this on right now. Because, like, I'm, I'm going to share this very quickly with you. And I don't know if you're going to want to put this in or not, but. Uh, here is a photo of the 1930s Rutgers Scarlet Knight marching band uh, right in front of some. I I can't remember which building this is, but uh, they have a giant R on their bass drum. Uh, and it is taking a while to come up live radio. But uh, there it is. And uh, they look like 
uh, some, some the uh, colonial soldiers, I was which say is, that is super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so fun times. Uh, great job, Rutgers. Uh, I still love you for giving my high school band, Piscataway, the Piscataway High School Super Chief Marching Band, uh, all of the instruments you did over the four years that I was there. So love you, Rutgers, and I always will. Um, let's see here. Horn licks, which we talked about. Anything else you want to want to get to on uh, on the two bands, the two Sudler Trophy winning marching? Bands. They were great. They were awesome. Uh, we'll put show notes of the the couple recordings that we've uh, got if you want to listen. And uh, yeah, no, I think both bands did an excellent job. And I I will say it was a uh, fine matchup, just like the football uh, at the Rose Bowl. Awesome. That's going to be our cold open. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the playoff bowl recap playoffs of the Feed Your Mascot Path podcast. My name is Blue and I'm joined with my host, Jeff. Uh, I see you have some of that nasty weather that I've got and we're yep. forced indoors for your for your training. How are you? I, I am good. I just got back from the gym where we've got an indoor track that theoretically has a run, jog and walk lanes, but it turns into very commonly walk, slightly faster walk, people running other than a few people that don't realize this is the run lane and not the walk lane. So it's nice, nice run on the indoor track today. Folks, please adhere to your gym etiquette. Uh, we had a lot of games on New Year's Day, uh, but but I think we're going to focus on two in particular, Jeff, and that's the two playoff games. Um, and not to say that there weren't other great games. Uh, Penn State, come on, buddy. You, you had your shot and you didn't take it. Um, I really don't want I told Penn State people I would not talk about them if they didn't beat Michigan and then they didn't beat Michigan. So sorry, Penn State. Um, but I, I really do want to talk about the two playoff games, the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Uh, Michigan and Alabama played a great one, uh, an instant classic over there on the West Coast. And then in New Orleans, we had Texas and Washington and uh, it got weird. And uh, then it didn't because the game was over. So I, I want to start out on the West Coast. We'll go in order of play, if, if you don't mind. Um, and I want to stump for this because I know you wrote a bullet here, but the Michigan defense is real good. Yeah. Um. They, okay, Havoc rate, 18%, 89th percentile. And I think that is like the key stat of this game is the pressure anytime Alabama threw, the ability to get in the backfield and shut down their running attack, as well as some good play in the secondary. Like the Michigan defense was absolutely incredible in this game and all year. Um, and they, but they obviously, they, run the game for Michigan is how good that defense is. And I think there has been a lot of talk of some sloppy play on Michigan special teams and maybe some, uh, you know, the offense did pretty good for most of the game, but they, there were a couple moments where they were also looking a bit, a bit off kilter, but Michigan's defense did everything it needed to make Michigan be able to win in spite of making a couple of other plays. Like, I think it's hard to describe just how good this Michigan defense is. So I want to kind of define for some of the folks that, that are listening. Havoc is a team's total tackles for loss, passes defended, and forced fumbles divided by the total numbers of plays in which they were on defense. And so the Havoc rate kind of tells us how much disruption a defense is weighing way laying onto the offense in which they're they're defending and the Michigan defense has all year produced 
havoc of untold and unheretofore unseen numbers onto the teams they're playing. And Alabama was just the latest victim. I know you're talking stats. I really want to talk about the stoppage rate. The stop rate here, I mean, Michigan was at 56%. And some of the ways that I have seen people talk about this game, Michigan made a lot of mistakes, but still won. Michigan, they muffed two punts, and that really put them in a bad spot. They missed a field goal. They 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 had trouble with the snap on an extra point. And they're taking those four plays and saying they should have lost because of those four plays. Defensively, six straight three and outs for the Alabama offense because of the Michigan defense. 56% stop rate. 18% havoc rate, 11 tackles for loss, six sacks, 21%. So Alabama only attempted, and I want to be clear about this, they only attempted 23 passes, and six of those attempts were sacks. Yeah. They're being sacked on a quarter. And I, <laughs> I mean, I we are talking about a team, a very regularly explosive Alabama Crimson Tide football team reduced to three explosive plays. They only produced one long drive and the two field goals they kicked were over 50 yards. Both of them. I don't know how else to say this, but the Michigan defense did everything they were supposed to in this game, including... I, and, I, and I'm sure we'll get there, including play the final play of the game perfectly. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I don't know what else people are like. I, I'll say if, if you want to say the, the Michigan offense was inconsistent, which I mean, it did pretty decently on EPA per play, but success rate was inconsistent. Like you can say that they're, oh, they were a bit inconsistent. You can say they made special team mistakes. True. The defense put... The defense put them in a position they could still do all that and win. Like there's an Correct. argument that Michigan should have probably won by three scores. Yeah, and, and won in regulation, and they didn't because they made mistakes. But the defense still kept them in it. Like <laughs> it's. I asked this question. I, I this question has been asked repeatedly, and so I will ask you about your team, Purdue. Into the game. Or end of regulation, who do you want on the field? The Boilermaker offense or the Boilermaker defense? This season, 2023 season, this? to be clear. So not the 2022 season in which Jeff Brom's offense was the best in the country. The 2023 season. I would rather have the offense just because of how weak the secondary was. And I don't necessarily want that the game coming down to a secondary that probably isn't going to entirely hold its weight. And I'd rather control what the end of the game looks like having the offense with the ball. This is the point I'm getting at. You made a very clear distinction of which one you would know would end the game in the way of success for the Boilermakers. And I think Michigan has the same idea in that it would be their defense. On the final play of the game, this is the final play of overtime. And to be clear, the inconsistency of offense, nowhere to be found in overtime. You give the ball to Blake yeah. Corum, he gets 25 yards in two plays. The game is now a seven-point lead for Michigan. Yeah, they can still run the heck out of the ball. <laughs> this is a sure crushing attack. And they scored, by the way, on the same counter play that they scored against every team they played this year. They used this counterplay to great effect against Penn State and their phenomenal defense, against Ohio State and their phenomenal defense, against Iowa and their phenomenal defense, and they did it again against Alabama. So against every team they played, they pulled that right guard, Corum got the ball, went right, bounced it to the, to the left side, to the weak side where there was no uh, tight end, and scooted. And you are not going to arm tackle Blake Corum. I don't care if it's a Nick Saban defense. I don't care if it's a Ryan Day defense. I don't care if it's a Kirk Ferentz defense. You're not going to arm tackle this guy. At least not consistently. And they didn't do it at all on that play. So on the next drive, on offense, Alabama is driving the field. They drive down to the four-yard line. They get stopped three plays in a row. Fourth down is here. Alabama lines up. They take another low snap, which, by the way, the sender from Alabama was having trouble with the snap 
all game, consistently, killing two drives, I might add, and then losing the game on a bad snap where Milrow tucks it and does QB power. I have no qualms with the call. I think the call is a, I actually like the call, as in Milrow was all day running successfully and running well. But what happened on this play is that the Michigan defense immediately and belligerently crashed the offensive line, closed that running lane at the center, and then the edge took the right tackle and pushed him into Jalen Milrow. It's very clear. He won his battle and threw the offensive lineman. I can't make the tackle because you're in my way. Well, I'm going to use you to assist. This was a defense on a mission, and they accomplished that mission on this play. I I can't say anything else. Michigan played great. I also would like to point out, in the red zone, Michigan scored 57% of the time, even with a missed field goal. Yeah. And like... The red go the red zone success for Alabama was thirty eight percent. You can't when you're in the red zone you have to score and Michigan did that more than fifty percent of the time. I again we can we can wax poetic about muffed punts and trouble with the snap and oh they're gonna do it again. You could even I could even accept the argument that JJ threw an interception on the first play of the game and I thought oh here we go here we go Michigan he got bailed out by the sideline but. Michigan's defense is the story of this game. And yes, it's a complete game. Yes, special teams is important. But the defense is so good that mistakes didn't matter. That's where we should be. That's where we should be talking. They were so good that the mistakes didn't matter. Yeah, and to an extent, you having one exceptional unit and you know, another second, you know, not say that the Michigan offense is bad, but another only pretty good unit. You've got the exceptional one to lean on. <laughs> exactly. Like we, we I see mean, this the I, other way with great offenses that are a little better yep. than, than their defense. Like part of it is you can give a little bit of slack because nobody's no side of the ball is going to have a perfect day every day. Exactly. And I do want to talk about Michigan's offense for a minute. And and I want to give Coach Moore a ton of credit. When he needed a play, he drew it up every time. When they needed a score and get on the board and get that first touchdown, they had the defense so confused. Two men were running open, both Blake Corum and a wide receiver were running wide open across the field, across the formation. When they needed a fourth down conversion late in the game, confused them again. And they had a run, Blake Corum, again, this guy had already scored a touchdown, running wide, running free. No one covered him. No one stopped him. He just ran up the field. On the last, on the touchdown run, he was untouched for 15 yards before a defender could actually get to him. I mean, this was a a masterpiece of a game, at least a masterpiece in calling the plays you need to call when you need to call them by coach Sharon Moore. I, you know, he had already has head coaching experience. I would add he deserves a raise. Like, he deserves a raise. He'll get one because somebody is going to come calling to get him to be the head coach somewhere. Coach Moore, if you're interested, I have a job for you at Norfolk state university where we see the future in you as a head coach. I mean, this guy is a great coach. He's a great offensive mind. And I, I just loved it so much on the other side, you've got Tommy Reese who. He called a good game. Yeah. He was betrayed by a, an offense that was similarly confused by all the havoc that was happening to them. By the the sheer they were blitzing him from all 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 angles. They had safety blitzes on a high number of plays. Mike Sangrasil was just coming in unabated to the quarterback on multiple plays. He was he was getting beat on plays because obviously you're getting told, "Hey, pin your ear back, go get him." Yeah, you're going to get beat sometimes, but he didn't get beat all the time. And that's the tale of the game, right? You made the plays. He made a yeah. couple of plays that just, I was blown away by him. I, it was amazing. Um, I, great game. I, I think there's people that have an expectation of perfection 
because they watch a lot of NFL at high level NFL, those plays and those teams are run to perfection. And college ball is if you really, truly enjoy college ball the way we do, the imperfection is the beauty. At least it is to me. Yeah, it is to me. It is. Hard to describe, I think, that gap between college and pro where. Yeah, every team is an all star team of of college players for the most part in in the NFL. And they've had more time to learn and perfect and they can focus on it more fully. And there's you know, more ability to get everything right. And the other thing, too, is, I mean, we also see. Not great play in the NFL as well. Not not every game. Shh. Hush. Is, Don't tell them. Don't tell them. But at, <laughs> at the same time, right, you understand that like not everybody can be perfect, particularly in in college. I mean, and I watch a lot of not the big helmet teams, and I'm like, yeah, you're gonna see like some overthrows. It just happens, man. Like. Not yeah. every Watch player coverages. is perfect. And one of the interesting things that coordinators can do is, okay, I know what talent I have. I know what they can do well. What can I do to maximize that for those players? And you see a lot of really interesting schematic things at the college level. That's I've got, you know, yes, you recruit your players that you choose them. You have, you know, players that fit what you want to do. But at the same time, you know that in a lot of places, you've got limitations on, on who you can get, you can't get the perfect player. So it's what are things that I can do that can maximize the players that I have, that I can recruit to this place. And you get a really, a lot of really great innovation of scheme as a result. So I, one of the things I've been doing and um, I've been trying to really work on my understanding of the game, play calling philosophy, play call structure, um, Somebody on the Moon Crew Discord actually did all of Texas's play calls and how Steve Sarkeesian calls his plays, which I think is just lovely and we'll get to him in a moment. But I've been really trying to understand how the cat and mouse game evolves, um, particularly we're not an NFL podcast. But if you look at a lot of NFL right now, offenses are struggling for a variety of reasons. It could be because 59 different starting quarterbacks have played this season because of injury or it could also be that defenses have now caught up to these wide open pass heavy spread offenses. And we now have the Internet does one thing that I absolutely truly love. And I, I do want to investigate this further. But the Internet allows for a collective consciousness to have discussions about a thing in a way that had never existed prior to or at least in a speed that has heretofore not been seen. And so. I love that in the moment that these defenses are now finding ways to confuse and complicate at the professional level, that's going to filter down. That's how that's how innovation has usually gone. Defensive innovation filters from the NFL. Offense innovation filters to the NFL. At least that's how I've read it. Maybe there's some professional guy who decide I'm bored of beating NFL defenses. I'm going to go now beat college. But typically offensive guys go up and defensive guys come down. And how they're beating defense, how defenses are beating offenses in the NFL now is something that I've taken great fascination with. And so what I'm interested in is how the the. Ravens defensive coordinator or defensive staff member who runs who is currently defensive coordinator for Michigan has brought what is a similar defense to the college game and he's going to get a job somewhere I don't know where but he worked for one brother at the pro he worked <laughs> for the big brother big brother John now he's working for little brother Jim ironically the little brother is a taller one as the oldest I understand and hate this because that's just <laughs> how it goes um I Apologies to my ask, sister. Are you, are you, I am much. T I am taller than my sister. See, and that's it's it's a real shame. We <laughs> Congress needs to do something about these younger siblings <laughs> being taller than older siblings. But uh, it's interesting to me that that's what we're watching right now. Is that that NFL? It's called pattern match defense, or basically what they're doing is they're splitting the field in half and they're running one defense on one side of the field and they're running a different defense on the other side of the field, and that's confusing to quarterbacks. Or at least 
They haven't figured it out yet. And I promise you, someone smart will. That's how football works. I, I'm endlessly fascinated by this. The physics, the physicist in me is like, God, this is this is how you do it. This is how you innovate to the next level. This is how quantum mechanics gets formed. And so I, I'm very exciting about it. I'll say and um, one very neat thing is often defenses will adjust to a trend in offense and it will create a new inefficiency of how you can attack a defense. And so things can be very cyclical of what strategies work and don't. And you can kind of always find something that can work at the edges. And I think that that's really neat, particularly when you have resource mismatch, resource unbalance like we do at the college level of there's kind of always a trying to come up with a good word here, but there's there's always a place that an under-resourced program can look and say, okay, what are kinds of players or kinds of plays that defenses aren't thinking about stopping that we can try and do? And those change over time. I mean, we saw in a period of the early 2000s, that was, oh, if we spread the field out, get really fast guys, because the big programs are looking for big, strong players if we you know, take speed, if we can wear those players out by running at fast pace, we can have an advantage. Defenses have shifted to a point where, no, actually, if we get big guys because no one's looking for the big guys, they're all looking for the fast guys, we can get an advantage. And it's a very interesting cyclical thing that, that can help a lot of programs as well as create a lot of innovation in the game. Absolutely. Just want to, I know you're talking early 2000s football. Just want to shout out Northwestern for bringing the read option to uh, Division One F. Well, it would have been Division One A at the time, but modern Division One FBS because they they had a guy come up and said, "Hey, like if we can confuse the last guy on the line, we can really make something happen here." Shout out to Northwestern for doing that. I want to hit this last bullet point that you have here for this game. All the talk about people and their desire to be in one place or another. Would you mind uh, elaborating, reading it out, and telling us what you meant? There were some discussions that I heard of okay, how motivated are Alabama fans going to be to go to the Rose Bowl? It's the same level of motivation that Michigan, because a lot of the Michigan fans that that I know and I've talked to online were like, we're really excited because it's the Rose Bowl and we all know the Big Ten and the Rose Bowl. People are like, well, do people, are Alabama fans holding the highest team? Do they want to travel out? Particularly because there's talk of Alabama fans just being like, my bank account's empty because I keep trying to travel to games, um, which sounds like a really, really great problem to have that your team's that good. Anyways, um, there was a lot of red in stands. There were a lot of there huh. was a big Weird. Alabama contingent. So, hmm. I wonder why they made the trip to sunny Pasadena <laughs> for a football game. I guess, well, the world will never know. I, you know. I have issue with the idea that travel for a few because they don't want to means we have to upend the entire system. What I would say, and I believe this strongly, if you decide to put all the games on campus because some team has home advantage or whatever, there's another team that has to travel there and fight to get tickets because they're not going to be allowed tickets. We can have a separate conversation about what a scam some of the bowl games are as far as ticket sales. I am, I have no problem admitting the Fiesta Bowl absolutely got away with a whole bunch of financial crimes <laughs> until it didn't. Like I, I don't want to make it out like I'm going to defend that aspect of the bowl season. The aspect of the bowl season I do want to defend is giving a team some opportunity to go to a place, reward its players, and play an opponent it would otherwise not play for the same reason we're talking about now, which is travel. We have teams that up until the modern era did not leave their region for a number of reasons, mostly because they didn't want to. We have teams that don't play helmet games because they think it's going to affect their ability to participate in the very system of the postseason system that people don't like, which to me seems like a real oxymoron. But 
I do want teams to travel to places to play games. Now, I don't know if that they can keep playing them in professional stadiums. I think that's bad. But like the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, one that is means a lot to me because it's an HBCU stadium and a lot of games, the Legion Field out in Alabama, which has fallen into disrepair. I just really want these games to continue in some fashion or another. Yeah. So and they are they are great opportunities for for the players, they're great opportunities for fans. And one thing that I think also is left unsaid of this is both at the college and to some degree the pro level is a lot of neutral site games give alumni and fans that have moved out of the region an opportunity to watch some of those games. There are a lot of Michigan fans that live in the that live in Southern California that have an opportunity to go to a Rose Bowl. One of the big talking points with the Big Ten when they added Rutgers in Maryland is there are a lot of Big Ten alums in the D.C. and New York City metropolitan areas that can now go to games more often because they're playing away games at Rutgers in Maryland. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I really do think that the old TV model is going away for how we decide who gets to be in conferences. Like I, I am aware that the SEC said we're going to bring in Texas and Oklahoma and make a whole bunch. Of, yeah, that's that's great. But like this conference has too many teams. Someone's like I like I keep saying, if you want to know what's going to happen, you look to the past. That's what's going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. This conference or the precursors to this conference has already tried this, where they had 18 teams from Texas to South Carolina in a conference and it didn't work because somebody got upset because their slice of the pie wasn't big enough, wasn't tasty enough, whatever. Another more, you can I don't want to get on a reason. Rant. The first 16 team conference was the whack. And this is how we got the Mountain West because it's, it's also how we got two. the Pac-10. It's also how we got the Pac-10 because at the time that was the Pac-8 and it didn't have the Arizonas and the Pac-10 has rued the day they invited the desert into their midst. Um, I'll give you the last word on the Rose Bowl because you are the Big Ten man <laughs> and I know you, again, I it saddens me that there are people who want to take something that other people enjoy and be rude to it because other people enjoy it. So I, I I want Purdue to win a Rose Bowl. Please do so again in my lifetime. Jeff, please give us the final word on, on this bowl game. I say it was a great game. Yes, it's a bit sloppy, but I think that makes most games kind of fun. Like I think two perfectly two teams playing perfectly isn't really all that fun, to be honest. Um, you need a bit of chaos. This had it. It had the beautiful, incredible setting. I would love Purdue to be in the Rose Bowl, but how our path to get there looks very diff will look very different in the future than it ever has. And it honestly shuts the door to most of the Big Ten that you could kind of think about once in a generation, a Purdue or an Illinois or Northwestern an IU or Northwestern could win the Big Ten and go to the Rose Bowl. Now with the way the playoff structure works i don't see that happening to the same degree and theoretically it does open the window to some great teams outside the big 10 um or outside the, the what would have been the pac-12 formerly known as the um, pac-10 yeah yeah to get to that event and there's an interesting question of you know does how does that kind of shake out in in access but i think it fundamentally changes the relationship between a lot of Big Ten fans and the Rose Bowl. And I think it's a it's going to be kind of interesting how how that looks. And I think it would take a really interestingly exceptional year for the way that the new Big Ten looks for one of the non powers, because there are just so many more powers that a year where you can beat Michigan and Ohio State for Purdue like 2000. You know, it takes both you having a very good team and sometimes it takes a little bit of luck on where where the powers are. Well, now we've just added. Theoretically, three more powers into the conference. It's going to look different, but I, I mean, I think the setting for a football game is impactful and I think having these unique 
to college football settings for these games is great. The Rose Bowl is like this. The Sun Bowl um, is like this. It's a shame that some of the other bowls have moved into NFL stadiums because I think that fundamentally changes what that looks like. And particularly when we talk about moving into a dome like the Cotton Bowl, it fundamentally changes the experience and takes a lot of the soul out of it when you move it inside into a dome. I hear that and I... I, It is a shame that that's going to go away, but... You know, Barry Alvarez won three or four of them while he was at Wisconsin. So, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, moving on, I want to talk about the Sugar Bowl, one of the great bowl games that we have here. Uh, played in New Orleans. Uh, this game has been around a long, long time. And uh, this year it was the Washington Huskies and uh, the Texas Longhorns, two teams that played in bowl season last year. And, uh, well, things went about the same each time. So, clearly, Washington is good at beating teams they have beaten before. <laughs> Don't know why they keep getting allowed to play the same teams, but here we are. Uh, Washington, 37, Texas, 31. And, uh, oh boy, I, hmm. Michael Penix Jr., and I have said this all season, is the best quarterback in college football this season. I, if you want to argue that uh, Jaden Daniels is better because he won the Heisman, be my guest, do a lot of yards, do a lot of touchdowns, he didn't play in a Sugar Bowl. So, I, man, I... Jeff, I don't really know where to begin here. I I, I know you, I, we have all the numbers. We'll get to that. We have the thing you've been saying about Washington's defense. I really want to stump for that because I'm now, I, I have taken it. I love it, heard it, received it. I want to make it my own. But where do you want to begin here in the Sugar Bowl? I think it's hard to to ignore how good Michael Penix Jr. is. Like both it's watching it, if you look at the stats, 11.32 uh, yards per passing play for him. Yikes. That is, that is you. if you average first down, a first down every time you drop back, yo, you're good. Um, I don't know what to say. And like, That's I've heard not. some people that are more on the NFL side kind of doubting his potential ability as an NFL player. No offense, I don't care. He is so good in college. Like I'm I'm watching him as a college player right now. We can get if you are a draft Nick, you can Nick pick him. We can figure out once he gets into the league what he's going to be like in the league. That is. He he's great and I want to appreciate it now. Um, And yeah, it was very much a both offenses humming. Very fun game. And it seemed like everyone in New Orleans was having a fun time. It is a very fun city in New Orleans. Um, and yeah, if you saw some of the uh, shots of Bourbon Street during the game, it it is a New Orleans. Yes, you had to apologize for one of them. <laughs> New Orleans is certainly a city that has. It's a great place. Thing, for football, yeah, man. that Love is. It. it is. I feel like one of the things that makes bowl games great is if you are able to to travel to them, if like the cities are great places to spend a weekend. And New Orleans is an incredible city. If you're if you're a big party person, it's a great party city. It also is a great city for live music. It's a great city for um, food. If you if you go to bed at 10 and, and just hit the hay, you will still have a great time because, you know, you can get dinner and lunch and it, it'll be freaking fantastic. And there's places they're playing live music earlier in the day like. New Orleans is incredible. We need to go. We, I want to go get beignets with you. That's going to be a trip for us. Um, listen, Michael Penix Jr., 29 for 38, 430 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, no sacks, 11.32 yards per play. He himself accounted for 0.54 EPA per play and had a total EPA of 20.7 because every, every throw he made was on the money. I just... Every throw he threw was to an, a wide receiver who was NF. He has weapons grade wide receivers and knows how to use them. And is not like he is out here throwing the ball to a covered wide receiver and they're catching everything. They're not dropping passes. There's a play where Texas does everything right. Literally everything right. Gets in his face, 
crashes the line. Defender tips the pass. The ball pops straight into the air into a wide receiver who catches it for a touchdown. Yeah. I just, I, <laughs> Penix was on fire. He's, I loved every second of it. I, it's just Roma Dunze, and I really think he should have won the Belindikoff. And I'll keep saying it because as a college wide receiver, he was on, he was unstoppable. In this game, he goes out there and says to the DBs, I'm going to make whatever I want to happen happen. Five catches, excuse me, six catches, 125 yards. I what are you gonna do with him? What what, what are you what are you gonna do with him? I just love him so much. Great player. I very funny interaction between him and Scott Van Pelt, where Scott Van Pelt called him Rome Adunze. And Rome Adunze is like, they still say my name wrong on TV. Uh, very funny. Scott apologized. Also very funny. And then Rome says, if they're still saying my name wrong, that means I haven't done enough yet. Just perfect interaction. Uh, and I hope he's out here and I, I hope he gets back out there and keeps playing. I, I love it so much. I do want to point out, they had a running back, 21 carries, 49 yards, two TDs. Dylan Johnson gets hurt on the final play of the game or final offensive play for Washington. What did you uh, What did you think of them stopping the clock as they normally do for injuries when Washington clearly does not want the clock to stop? Yeah, I understand why you do a, obviously why you do a timeout. I think that there's a question of, hey, should once you get the player off, should you allow that to keep rolling if the, the other pl- team wants it just because essentially you've now created a free timeout for Texas by Washington having an injury. And that I think could also incentivize some really weird behavior of from players that are hurt. So I I think giving say Washington or a team that has an injury, the flexibility to say, no, we actually want the clock to keep rolling. I think makes sense because otherwise you could potentially give a free timeout. Um, and Texas was very much needing a little bit of time and was able to get down the field, but Washington got a timely stop, which is really the hallmark of this Washington defense is timely stops. You have said this, and I I think it's perfect and I'm stealing it for myself, but the Washington defense is explosive and not efficient in a way that is not captured in stats or as explained by the things that happen. And I do want to point the following out. They had a stop rate of 48%. They had havoc of of 10%. They had six tackles for loss, and they had two sacks. Their defense played very well in addition to causing two turnovers. So these these are defensive plays that at the end of the day, do everything you need to do to win a game. I I, I love it. I love everything about it. Yeah, and I, I will say, it, as someone watching the games, yeah, they, they can take risks and get beaten sometimes, but one of the reasons they do that is if you put the other team in positions where they're getting sacked a lot, they can't finish drives. And very critically, Washington is taking a bet that they can finish more drives than you can because... Fundamentally, they're, <laughs> they have a great offense. They score very quickly. They're not t- necessarily taking a ton of time off the clock. They're okay with having a ton of possessions because they can, they're can. they making the bet that, hey, we might give, give up some possessions, some scoring on your possessions. That's fine. We think we can execute on more possessions than you. And fundamentally, the goal of the game is to get more points than the opponent. If you think you are better than the other opponent at getting possessions off or turning possessions into points. You actually want more possessions because it's more opportunities to prove yourself right. That's correct. It's very funky. The the like ball control ethos in, in football that often it's the more talented teams trying that where just about every other sport, it is... You want to maximize your opportunities to score if you think you are better, because it turns out doing that means you'll probably score and you'll probably push that advantage. Like you see in basketball, it's teams that want a low pace that get upset more often. Correct. It's very interesting in in football that a lot of how coaches apply that. And there are some teams where I see them doing that and it makes a ton of sense. Like Iowa 
who isn't the most talented team in the Big Ten trying to saying, hey, we want to control the clock and limit the other team's possessions makes a ton of sense if they're playing like Ohio State or Michigan. Like that is how that is how bad you if upset you're playing teams. Tennessee. It's bad if you're playing Tennessee, though. Yeah, because Tennessee could score quickly <laughs> and doesn't care if you, you want to stop the game. Great. We'll put your offense back on the field. Have fun. It was not fun. Although, and I will say this, Iowa has a quarterback from New Jersey who is 6'5", 245 pounds, who's highly mobile, and he could have been playing all year, but they kept him on the sideline. And I am upset that Iowa didn't put this kid out there to go, go play, go back and play. And I, I Iowa, I we can say I think this I'm is sorry. an interesting offseason topic, um, depending on the hire that they make as sure. offensive coordinator on what Iowa is thinking, because I'm like there is some logic in some of how they operate. But you need to execute on offense to make that work, and they haven't. So I'm very curious how they move forward, because when Iowa can execute on offense, they are an incredibly difficult team to beat in the big time. They sure are. Uh, I'm going to take the last word on the Sugar Bowl. Um, great game. Michael Penix Jr., I he has done enough to submit as one of the guys I'm going to remember for a long time. Very impressed with him. Loved every minute of it. I love when the ball goes downfield. I love points. And he drops bombs. And that that is going to be something the Michigan defense is going to have to consider. We'll see what's going to happen. No predictions on this <laughs> show, but we will talk about it after they play. And they play on Monday, January the 8th, 2024. So uh, good luck to both teams. I want a good game. I'll say we, uh, we will have we've the, got a, probably the best defense and the best offense in the country facing each other. So that's going to be... If you like seeing best on best, that's going to be great. Immovable object versus unstoppable force. Who who comes out on top? Um, Jeff, you brought this to my attention. I had read the article, didn't know if we wanted to talk about it. But the CIAA has had a conference championship game for some time, at least all of my lifetime. And they are now moved. We're playing it in Salem, Virginia, which is near Roanoke. It's out in the western part of Virginia, out in Appalachia. they're now moving this game or open to the idea of moving this. In some reporting from HBCU Game Day, one of the great figures in the HBCU sporting world, they're looking at moving it from Salem Football Stadium and cities are now open to bid. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think? Who, who are you thinking could be a good place for this? It's interesting because I, I read this and knowing the geography of the conference that it's between South Carolina and Pennsylvania, um, with Lincoln. It's a big conference. I see the idea of doing in kind of the center of the conference, having a title game. I am very curious where they put it because yeah, if you've had, you've had it in Salem for as long as you have the capacity of the stadium is around 7,000. They're current, they're holding it in. Where are you looking? Are you looking to a city that can hold a big event? Are you looking for a bigger capacity stadium or looking for something similar? Cause there's, and I think fundamentally, you still want it kind of in that central area of the conference. Maybe you want it somewhere more up and down I-95 than out on 81, um, somewhere that maybe has more higher hotel capacity. Um, sure. So I don't know. Do you look at D.C. Um, where you could potentially hold it at Audi Field, um, where um, D.C. United and Washington Spirit play? It's about uh, 20,000 capacity. Could you hold it on another college's campus? Could you hold it at? you're looking in DC, could you hold it at Howard or one of the other places I think we were talking before on the show? Um, if you were to ha- do it in the Norfolk Hampton Roads region, could you play it either Norfolk State or Hampton or, you know, a neutral site like that? Would that be something that would be possible? Richmond, um, I saw some people on Twitter potentially throughout Richmond um, that. Which I think would be a good choice. Uh, yeah. Cards on the table, Richmond would be a great choice. That, okay, would you play at um, University of Richmond's uh, campus? It would be about an eight and a half thousand seat capacity. Do you play it at City Stadium um, that the Richmond Kickers play at, that I think some high school teams play at, that yeah. depending mm-hmm. on how they open it is either 6,000 or 22,000 of a capacity. Um, and Richmond's sure. very, very much in the center. Um, somewhere like Raleigh um, that has Wake Med Soccer Park in um Carry it's about 10,000 capacity that um, is where Carolina Courage play in the NWSL. Um, that's also hosted NCAA tournaments for lacrosse and soccer that does 
kind of that neutral site environment really, really well. Yeah. Raleigh is a great city for an event. Um, Charlotte, where could you hold it? And Charlotte, would it be um, Charlotte Stadium? It's about 15,000. Would you want it in an NFL stadium? Um, going from a capacity of 7,000 to a capacity of over 70,000. Um, Cause I think you also threw out Baltimore that they could play at the Ravens stadium. Yeah. Um, so Baltimore is where the CIAA basketball tournament is held. And so they have a couple of teams in that area. Coppin is in the area that's, you know, these are all Bowie state is local to Baltimore. I mean, there's a lot of options in Baltimore. Baltimore is a sneaky good city to have something in, especially with the Harbor being recently updated. I mean, I, there's a lot of good stuff here. I, one Suggestion I think a lot of people are going to consider is having the games just on campus. Um, I don't know how the I don't know how the appetite is for that. But, you know, you said Richmond and Virginia Union is in Richmond and Virginia Union is the reigning champion. They just won it this year in 2023. I, they may say, hey, you got to come. You got to come play the Panthers and you got to play them on our campus here in scenic Richmond, Virginia, in the capital of the Commonwealth. So I. It's up. We'll, we'll monitor the situation. Yeah. And all the suspect is speculation. There isn't reporting available on what cities are and aren't interested. We just kind of brainstormed what cities are in that footprint. Um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch because that is a one of the most historic conferences in in college football on how they proceed there. And I think we've seen at the FBS level different approaches to doing a, a championship game. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how that proceeds we'll say this um the ciaa is kind of a mainstay in hbcu athletics um its creation gave us a lot of what we have today as far as hbcus coming together and saying we will show a united front and have done so for over a century one year older than the big 10 which was known as the the western conference uh, but is now currently the Big Ten. Um, so we may have something in the future about this conference, the CIAA, uh, something that uh, is really my brainchild that I came up with uh, with the assistance of Jeff. And I, I came up with a crazy idea and Jeff immediately was like, ah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I uh, hopefully will have something good for you on that. Nothing to share yet, but uh, we are in talks. Look, and we are look in the future because this is going to be a Pretty Absolutely. ambitious project for us to put together. But for two guys, yes. Yeah, um, uh, and we'll probably bring in, we may bring in some help uh, to execute some of the stuff that that we want to try and do. So, Looking forward to it, and I can't wait. But I, I will say this, uh, one of the suggestions Jeff threw out here that I said would be a very, I, I think it wouldn't happen. This is a personal assessment, but Hampton University and their S, excuse me, and their Armstrong Stadium is a 12,000 capacity stadium that's currently being expanded. Hampton Institute is literally where the CIAA started on that campus in 1912. Uh, seven HBCUs met and they said, we will go forward with the creation of a conference that will look for our own interests. And so it would be poetic. I don't, I don't think Hampton would allow it. Knowing what I know about Hampton University, they would say no. But Hampton would be a good city for there to be a conference championship game. And it would it would come full circle. So who knows? We'll see. My beloved alma maters, both Norfolk State and Howard University, were both members of the CIAA. Norfolk State won it three times in a row and is still to this date the only team to do that. So, you know, behold and all that. But uh, I hope the CIAA makes a good choice here, somewhere that's a little more accessible than Salem, uh, Virginia. So, Jeff, anything you want to leave the people with as, as your great run is coming up soon? Yes, in one week, probably one week from when you hear this. So on January 14th, I will be doing a half marathon um, for cure rare disease in California. So say so we got to plan our, our recording with that. But um if you want to and we will. donate uh, to cure rare disease before then, you have until the 14th. So if you want to do that in this week, you can. It will be in the show notes. May um, put it on our socials as well. Um, we have I have reached the goal, um, but it's a good cause. Um, works on cures for rare genetic diseases. Um, so if you want to donate to that organization, um, you are absolutely welcome to. 
Absolutely. And I'm always further impressed by all the things you do. And I can't wait. Uh, I'm glad to have donated. And um, this run you're doing is an excellent cause. I'll say it for you. Boiler up and Indiana word. Uh, I will tell everybody this. We are rapidly coming to the end of the college football season. Two national championships games are going to be played. I believe one is in progress right now. No. Is that correct, the Jeff? FCS is played tomorrow for reasons unknown to me. It's played on Sunday. Instead of same reason that the FBS is played on Monday. It doesn't really matter. Um, but we will crown two champions. Someone will hoist a trophy and be able to say they are the national champions because it is decreed by some entity, either NCAA or the media, specifically ESPN. What I will tell you is this. The acceleration toward only naming a single national champion is starting to damper people's outlooks on the outcomes of the season that they just watched. And I will tell you, find every reason you can to love what you have watched this season. In it, I have gotten to watch North, or New Mexico State and the, the fight in Aggies win 10 games for the first time since the 60s. I've gotten to watch Kansas win a bowl for the first time in 20 years. I have gotten to watch, since then, Florida State go undefeated and I say have a legitimate claim to a national championship. I have gotten to watch many teams come out and make statements in the seasons that they participated in. I watched Memphis win a bunch of games and say, we are actually one of the, we are going to be the top of our conference next year. And so what I would say is after the season is wrapped up, after the Monday game is played on uh, on the 8th of January, I would say take this offseason to reflect and then take this to look forward to what you are going to look at for next year's season that does not include the national champion. Find that small team that you had never watched before and watch them. There's a D3 team out there that needs your support right now. Go, go be that support they need. There's a D2 team out there that's like, hey, man, we're playing good football, too. Go watch that team. Say that might be closer show them than, some love. than the FBS team that you follow. And it could be. I'll say a fun night out, even if you're a neutral. Go watch a game that's not on TV. Go watch a game on TV you wouldn't watch normally. What I'm suggesting is find the joy in this sport because it is a long offseason until August. And I don't want you to spend the next eight to nine months wishing what could have been. Because a national championship, as it has always been, is a mythical national championship. Do not let ESPN tell you otherwise. It matters because they tell you it matters. And no other reason than that. Because I promise you, there are teams that had phenomenal seasons and they had it whether or not ESPN said they could. And so I'm asking you to give this offseason a chance to increase your knowledge of the game, to increase your love for the game. And for you to enjoy the game at a higher level than you enjoy it right now. And of course, if you got to watch the Pop-Tart Bowl, <laughs> they actually listened to us and did the opposite of what we said, though. As opposed to feeding their mascot, they ate their mascot. Uh, and I'm sure it was delicious. So I will say this as I end every episode. Don't forget to feed your mascot. <laughs>